Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. day after, t- on Sunday morning, will be the 500th transplant uh, facilitated by Matnat Chaim. And um, it's an incredible privilege to be part of an organization like this. And um, I'd just like to tell you just a little bit about my own story and how, how I came to be involved and, and so on. Um, I moved to, uh, I grew up in, uh, in Kansas City in a conservative congregation at Beth Shalom. And, <laughs> USY and Camp Ramah, where I met Howard uh, and, uh, and many other lifelong friends. And um, I made Aliyah, moved to Israel after college, and um, moved to a kibbutz. And, you know, everything's great, and years go by, and I have uh, a husband and three daughters. Uh, two of them, uh, the younger two, are soldiers in the Israeli army. The oldest one has finished her army service, and she's a university student. And you know, I had a good job, and and, every, and a nice community, and a nice home, and, and everything was great. Um, but I, I think that um, this particular story started with a, a midlife crisis of sorts. Um, around the time I turned 50, I just it just wasn't. I just felt like it wasn't quite enough. I wanted to be doing something a little more. Not, there was nothing wrong with my life. My life was tremendous. But I just was looking for something a little more meaningful. Um, and I decided that what I was going to do was to uh, change careers. And I, I had a career I was doing like uh, industrial administration in a large factory. And um, I decided I was going to take my administrative talents and go to work in a nonprofit. Uh, and that was going to be my my sort of contribution. But I live kind of in the middle of nowhere, and um, there aren't too many nonprofits around where I live on the top of a mountain in the middle of uh, rural northern Israel. So I ended up uh, working at the University of Haifa, um, which was better than helping people sell oil filters, which is what I was doing previously. I was, uh, I was in the fundraising office at the university. And we dealt a lot with scholarships and helping, uh, helping uh, underprivileged students uh, get higher education. And that was, that was good. That was, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't saving the world. It wasn't feeding the hungry. But it was better than the oil filters. So I felt like I had sort of upgraded a little bit. Um, still was a little bit of an itch to try to, to do something a little bit more. And one day I was. Um, I was on the internet, just kind of bouncing around, as people do. And I saw a, an article that had been written by someone who I, an, an acquaintance, not even an acquaintance, a friend of friends, 
that I knew uh, back in the days when I lived in the States, a woman named uh, Devorah Steinmetz, who, uh, who was a teacher of Talmud in New York. And she wrote an article. Um, this was, I guess, in the beginning of 2012. Um, and she wrote about how she had been on sabbatical in Israel. And she uh, had been exposed to several mailings, like from her kids' schools, about people who were looking for kidneys. And all of a sudden, she felt like, wow, maybe these people need a kidney, and maybe she could donate. So she tried to donate her kidney, and she wasn't a match. And then they got from someone else. And so she sort of forgot about it. But then it kept kind of eating at her a little bit. And she uh, ended up, during the sabbatical, uh, donating, donating a kidney to uh, a dental student in Israel who had immigrated from the Soviet Union. And, and she wrote very meaningfully about how this came about and what it meant to her. And um, she talked about paying it forward. She said, you know, so many people have helped me in my life. They've helped my family. Uh, we've had illness. We've, uh, we've ha been through some difficult times. And people helped us in ways that I didn't feel that I could return the favor. Uh, it wasn't the, the kind of caring that I received from people wasn't something I felt I could, I could do for others. So I decided to do something different, something that was appropriate for myself, something that I felt that I could do. And this kidney donation thing kind of stuck in her mind, and she decided to go through with it. So she went to a hospital in Israel, a transplant center, and she said, listen, I'd like to do this. And they thought it was a little unusual, but uh, she went through with it, and she, and she wrote about it. And I read this article, and I just said, wow, that is the most amazing thing I ever heard. And, uh, and I started reading a lot about kidney donation and researching it. And, and first thing I found out was that kidney donation is, uh, is not too dangerous. It's, it's a relatively safe medical procedure. And many research studies have shown that someone who is healthy and donates a kidney, uh, he doesn't suffer in any way from quality of life. He doesn't have to take drugs. He doesn't have to have a special diet. He doesn't have to restrict his activities in any way. He goes on with his life with one kidney exactly the way uh, he, had, he lived his life with two kidneys. And it was incredibly appealing to me, and I was really interested. But I had just started this new job in the university, and, I, and it wasn't the sort of thing where I could say, well, I just came to work here two weeks ago, but I'll be taking a few weeks off now. <laughs> no. So I sort of filed it away in the back of my head. And about a year later, I saw a, uh, a, some kind of a publication or an advertisement, I can't remember, from this organization in Israel called Matnat Chaim, which means the gift of life. And I started finding out about this organization. It is an entire nonprofit dedicated to finding altruistic kidney donors who will donate kidneys to people who need them to sort of harness the innate goodness that, that people have inside and enable people to um, to pass it on. So I called the director of the organization, whom we just saw in the video, the, the ultra-Orthodox rabbi with the hat and the coat and the whole nine yards. I talked to him on the phone, and uh, he himself has, has a really, really amazing story, incredibly inspiring. This was a guy who was about 40 years old, and um, he was he taught in a yeshiva, and he also was the principal of a school in his neighborhood, ultra-Orthodox neighborhood in Jerusalem. And 
he was working two jobs, so he was working all the time and, and running around all the time. And he was tired, but you know, he, thought, he thought, well, I'm working you know, 18 hours a day. Of course, I'm tired. And he didn't pay much attention. And then one day, he was walking up the steps to his office at the school where he was the principal. And he couldn't make it up the steps. And he knew something was wrong. So he went to his doctor. His doctor sent him right away to the emergency room. And from the emergency room, they sent him to the dialysis because his kidneys had failed just in the course of a, a few days or weeks. It's actually very unusual. It's usually a more gradual sort of uh, a decline, or maybe he ignored the signs. But from one minute to the next, he found himself in dialysis. And it was just a shattering experience. Uh, I hope that uh, none of you, well, probably some of you do, uh, know too much about what life on dialysis is like. but. Let's just say that uh, you wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy. Um, people on dialysis have to have treatments usually three times a week for four hours at a time. You go to the dialysis clinic. You sit in the chair, put needles in one arm, put needles in the other arm. All the blood in your body goes into the dialysis machine and gets filtered out and back into the vein of the other arm. Uh, it's an it's a hours-long process. You have to do it three times a week. You cannot miss. Um, a dialysis patient who misses one treatment will be quite ill. And a dialysis patient who misses two treatments, that's it. That's, that's all you get. Um, dialysis is, a, is not a cure for kidney disease. It is just a way to prolong the life of a kidney patient until, uh, until a transplant can be uh, obtained for him or her. And now, some people, uh, you have to be reasonably healthy in order to receive a kidney transplant. Many people who are over 70 or 75, their bodies can't even take a transplant so because they're not strong enough to, to go through the surgery. Dialysis is very hard on the body. It's just 15% uh, of dialysis patients die every year because their bodies are just sort of worn down by this very, very difficult uh, treatment, which is a life-saving treatment. And we need to be very grateful. Until the 60s, uh, they didn't have dialysis, and, and people just died from kidney failure. Um, but it's not much of a life. And um, one thing that many people don't know is that when you're on dialysis, most kinds of dialysis, your diet is very, very restricted. You can't have uh, fruits or vegetables. You can't really have most of the foods that we think are good for us. Um, and the hardest thing is water. When you're on dialysis, you can't drink as much water as you want. Um, two, you can't drink a bottle like this even once a day. Two cups, like that coffee cup, two cups of water a day, that's what a dialysis patient can drink. And just have a drink here. People say that, um, that that's the worst, the not being able to drink. And, and there are stories. Um, especially children. You know, a little kid who, who can't understand the importance of sticking to a, a certain diet. There was one story where a little uh, family that, uh, of a child that was on dialysis, the child's mother came and told us the story. He said, well, uh, it took the kid, a six years old little boy, and he was on uh, dialysis. And when, when uh, at the beginning of dialysis, the patient is weighed. And the nurses and the, the technicians there can tell if the, 
if the patient has been drinking too much or they have too much liquid, then they, they're over the weight that they should be. So the nurse said to the parents, listen, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's getting too much water. I can see from, from his weight that he's drinking too much and you gotta, you gotta put a stop to it. It's very bad for his health. So the parents went through the house and put locks on all the faucets in the house. And for a couple of weeks, it was okay. Um, and then the nurse, a couple of weeks later, said, listen, I know you've been, you've been really trying, but he's still getting water from somewhere. And so they sort of followed him around the house, and then they caught him drinking from the toilet. And then they put a lock on the toilet. And uh, you know, this little kid, he just, he just wants a drink of water. And uh, about three weeks later, the nurse said, I'm very sorry, and I know that you've been trying, but he's still drinking too much water. And they couldn't figure out where he was getting the extra water because they had done everything they could until they realized that the water in the aquarium just going down. You know, and that sort of crystallizes the, the suffering of dialysis patients. It is a very, very difficult life. Um, people on dialysis are, are generally exhausted. They are, they, on the day they have dialysis, they go home to sleep. Uh, the next day, they're sort of half human, and the day after that, they have to go back to dialysis. Everything in your life revolves around dialysis. If you go on a trip, you have to know where you're going. You have to be registered with a dialysis clinic somewhere, wherever it is in your destination, and people just kind of waste away. And so what happened was this rabbi, Rabbi Heber, who you saw in the video, he was told that he had to be on dialysis. No one in his family was a match for him to donate a kidney. And in Israel, the wait for a, for a, a deceased donor kidney at that time was five to seven years. And it just seemed like a death sentence. He, he didn't know what to do, and there was, he didn't have any options. There were no altruistic kidney donations in Israel at that time. It was 2008. And for a year, he was in dialysis, and he just felt like the walls were closing in. He couldn't work. He, he was beside himself. And then something pretty close to a miracle happened, and a friend of his uh, came to him and said, I want to donate my kidney to you. And he grabbed the opportunity, and uh, the guy turned out to be a match for him. And he donated his kidney, and he got off dialysis. Now, while Rabbi Heber was on dialysis, what happens is everybody goes to dialysis three times a week for four hours. So people are on a set schedule. So people who go on Sunday and Tuesday and Thursday mornings, they're always with the same people. So there are relationships that, ha that, that are struck up in the dialysis clinic. And um, Rabbi Heber started a friendship with a 19-year-old boy who, uh, his name was Pinchas. He was from Kiryat Arba in Israel. He's a, a modern Orthodox yeshiva student. And he also had a story. Everybody has a story, right? What was Pinchas's story? Um, Pinchas was born with kidney problems, but when he was two years old, he got a kidney from his mom, and he was doing great, and he, he was relatively healthy. He was in school and, and the whole business. But um, when he was 15, his, Pinchas's older brother was killed in the army by terrorists who shot a machine gun into his tent. And so it was terrible tragedy, and the family, of course, set Shiva. And during the time that the family was sitting Shiva, Pinchas, who was 15, 
forgot to take the medicines that every kidney recipient has to take every day to prevent his body from rejecting the kidney. And during the whole shiva, he forgot to take his medicine. And no one thought to remind him because the house was in such a, uh, a tremendous chaos and, and grieving. And at the end of the week of shiva, Pinchas's body rejected his mom's kidney, and he had to go back on dialysis. So, I mean, that is just an unbelievable story. So here's this kid who was, by that time, he had been on dialysis for a couple of years, and he was already um, 19. And uh, he and this rabbi, Rabbi Heber, they struck up a, a, a special relationship because he said, listen, you know, here's this yeshiva kid who's has no teachers, and I'm a yeshiva teacher who has no students, so they formed what they called the dialysis yeshiva. And they sat and they studied during the time of the treatments and so on, and they became very, very close friends. So when Rabbi Heber got this kidney transplant from his uh, friend, Pinchas said, hey, got any more friends? Got a friend for me, maybe, who wants to? So after the rabbi got, had his transplant and he was recovered and, and you know, back sort of to regular functioning, he said, you know what? I'm going to find somebody to donate a kidney to Pinchas. I can't leave him behind in the dialysis clinic and just go on as if nothing happened. I'm going to find somebody. So he starts talking to his friends and his neighbors, and he says, say, would you be interested in donating a kidney to a kid you've never met? And they're all like, what's your problem? And people thought he was crazy. And he talked to dozens and dozens and, and probably hundreds of people. And finally, he found two people who said they would get tested to see if they were a match for Pinchas. And one of them was a match. It was an incredible, fantastic development. And but at the time, uh, the Israeli health uh, authorities were not, altruistic kidney donation was not something that they had in their mindset. The only kidney donations from living donors in Israel at that time happened between close family members, parents, children, siblings, and so on. Um, so they were very suspicious of this guy who came in and said, I want to donate my kidney to Pinchas, even though I've never even met him. And they thought there must be money passing under the table. There's something fishy going on. It's not quite kosher. Um, so it took a long time. And they had to convince a lot of people uh, that this that the donor was absolutely altruistic and, and nothing un unkosher was going on. So it took months before they were able to arrange the surgery, but the surgery was scheduled, scheduled for two weeks from now. Everyone's very excited. And then in the middle of the night, the phone rings in Rabbi Heber's house, and it's Pinchas's father, and he said Pinchas died. Two weeks before the kidney donation that would almost certainly have saved his life. He, his body just couldn't go on anymore with the with the dialysis. It just wears you down, and it, he gave out. So Rabbi Heber tells a story. He says, you know, I went to Pinchas's funeral, and I came back to my house, and I sat in a chair in the living room, and I didn't move for 24 hours. I didn't get up. I didn't sleep. I didn't eat. I didn't speak to anyone. I sat in my chair for 24 hours, and I thought, this cannot be. It cannot be that there are hundreds and hundreds of Israelis wasting away in dialysis clinics. And the, the solution to their problem is, is walking around in most healthy people on the street. It's so simple. My friend donated his kidney to me. He has no ill effects. 
it, it simply can't be that we are not able to solve this problem. And 24 hours go by, he calls his wife over and he says, honey, listen, I'm going to change everything. I'm going to quit my job in the, as a principal of the school and teaching in the yeshiva, and I'm going to donate, I'm going to dedicate my life to finding kidney donors for people like Pinchas. And she said, have you lost your mind completely? Obviously. That's what any sane person, I think, would say. But um, he did it. He quit his jobs. He went to work with a laptop in his living room. He walked around the neighborhood and talked to everyone he knew, trying to find people who would donate kidneys to strangers. And the first year, he found four. And his wife was working three jobs to keep the family solvent. And this guy is finding four kidney donors. And the second year, he found seven. And the third year, he found 15. And last year, there were 127. And we're about to do our 500th kidney transplant on Sunday. And this guy, single-handedly, first of all, how many people you know, who aren't surgeons can say that they have literally single-handedly saved 500 lives? And completely change the way that Israelis um, think about kidney transplants. Nobody did it in 2009, and now 500 people have done it. And those 500 people know hundreds and thousands of other people, and it goes from word to mouth, and we, the organization has put out, um, this is an English version of one of our magazines, but we put out uh, Hebrew magazines that go into the into the uh, newspapers like as a weekend supplement and people read them and they call and call and call. And the more people who know someone who has donated or read a story about people who have donated, um, it turns out that doing good is contagious. And it is a really amazing thing. So as far as I was concerned, I called up this organization. Um, I talked to, and you have to go through a lot of tests, a lot of tests. I'm sure that's the case here as well. In Israel, it takes, I think here it's a little bit more streamlined, but in Israel, it takes months and months, it takes six to eight months to go through all the testing. You have to have every medical test imaginable. And what's the reason? Because the doctors, they don't care for it. They don't like the idea. A surgeon does not want to take a healthy person and cut them open. It's against you know, the whole Hippocratic Oath kind of thing. Do no harm. They say, I'm doing harm. I'm, I'm slicing into a healthy person's body. Why am I doing this? They get used to it, you know? I'm doing this so I can save another person. And, but the doctors will do 100 tests to make sure that everything is absolutely OK with this person. You have to be completely, completely healthy to donate a kidney. Your heart, your kidneys, your blood pressure, your sugar, everything has to be perfect. If it's not perfect, forget it. You're not going to donate. You'll have to find some other way to do good in the world. But um, and then, once you've proven that you're completely healthy physically, uh, at least in Israel, you have to go through a whole battery of psychological testing. You have to speak to a social worker and a psychologist and a psychiatrist. And then you have to meet with this whole panel of people from the Ministry of Health who are asking you questions like, are you sure you're not taking money from anyone? Is anyone pressuring you to do this? Is this really something that's coming out of yourself? How do you know that no money is changing hands? And on and on and on. It's a long process. You have to really want it. But um, 
first of all, it's incredibly rewarding for the, for the donor, even the process. I'm not even talking about the part where, where I donated a kidney to, to Rena, a woman from Haifa. But even the process, you know, when you're, when you're 50 years old and you go through every health test imaginable and you get a good report card, um, that's a thing, you know? That's a real gift. And it made me feel like, you know, I think that, that many of us know that we have, we have enough money, so we share our money with other people by giving uh, charitable no donations. We have enough time, we're very fortunate. We share our time by volunteering. But most people don't think of good health as something that can be shared. Um, and this was a way for me to share a blessing that I have been given, my blessing of good health, and I can share my good health with someone else. There is a woman in Haifa named Rina. She's about my age. She has two boys. Uh, she has a husband. She's a, a cosmetician. And she was very, very ill with a hereditary kidney disease for, for over 10 years. And she got my kidney, and now she's OK. And just the idea that someone who was so ill, I was able to help them in a way that is, is difficult to describe. I have seen this woman go from being very ill to, go, to being healthy. And I know that I had a part in her returning to health, returning to her job, returning to her family as a healthy person. That is a gift that is so profound that it is, it's difficult to put it into words. Um, aside from you know, the day I got married and the day my, days my kids were born, I think it was the happiest day of my life, the day that I donated a kidney. And <clears throat> by the way, I'm certain that if other people understood, and you know, Shmuley understands it because he's done it, but if people understood how much donating a kidney upgrades a person's life, people would be lined up around the block, and there wouldn't be a person in the universe without who, who was on dialysis, because people would, would understand that the donor receives, as in many things when we give of ourselves, the donor receives much more than he gives. I know we have 500 kidney donors. I know probably 150 of them personally. Every single one of them will tell you right off that they wish they could give another kidney. It's obviously something you only get to do once. But every single person says it was one of the high points of, of his life. Women usually say, after, after giving birth, it was the greatest thing I ever did. And men usually say, it was the greatest thing I ever did because they don't get to have babies. But it's, it's indescribable. And to, to know that you have helped another person in, in a manner that profound is an incredible gift. And I still cry when I think about it, uh, just like you know, I think that everyone who thinks about his own donation gets very emotional because it's just an incredible thing, and it's an incredible gift. And um, that's pretty much the story. We are about to do our 500th kidney donation. Israel is a changed place um, since this organization started its activities in 2009. Um, Israel has traditionally had a very low, until, two th until about 10 years ago, Israel had a, a very low rate of, uh, kid of organ donation. A lot, uh, certainly a low rate of, um, live, of deceased organ donation. People, not too many people were signing donor cards in Israel. 
Part of it was because of the whole brain death, cardiac death dilemma. Um, medicine defines, um, medicine, modern medicine defines death as brain death, but uh, Jewish law has traditionally defined death as cardiac death. And if you wait until the heart stops beating, then usually the organs are no longer viable. This is a reason that Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox Jews often feel they are prohibited from donating their organs posthumously. But donating an organ as a living person, and we're talking about kidneys because that's pretty much the only organ that you can safely donate, safely and easily donate. Kidney donation has become a real uh, a trend in Israel, certainly among the Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox who still today make up the majority of our donors. Um, I think it's in part because many ultra-Orthodox Jews feel that they can't donate after they die. They're prohibited from doing it by, by, by Jewish law, and so they prefer to donate before. Um, but it's, it's an incredible phenomenon, and it goes from uh, it's word of mouth and people who are um, people who hear of, of other people and read about things. We have television and, and press coverage and so on. And it is um, Israel today has the highest rate of altruistic kidney donation in the entire world. And that is an incredible accomplishment, but we're not satisfied with it. What we want is, as Rabbi Heber said in the film, we want to be the first Western country without a waiting list for kidney donations. And we really believe we can do it. In, in the United States, there are a huge number. 110,000 people are waiting for a kidney in the United States. But in Israel, there are about 1,000 people. And we've done 500 transplants. Now, of course, people are getting added to the list all the time. But we really feel like we're, we're within, it's within our grasp, this this goal, and we're very excited about uh, continuing our work and saving lives. And um, we appreciate your coming to hear me talk today, and I'd be happy to answer any questions, or maybe for either of us. Rabbi Shmuley also uh, can answer questions about his experience. But uh, that's our story, and uh, I feel very fortunate to be a part of it. We've got some information here, uh, brochures, and of course, we'd be happy to have your support. Uh, if you're interested, you can sign up here to get more information. And uh, thank you very much. <laughs> Question, yes. Here's the thing. Um, there's a huge difference. Liver transplants is, a, is a, also an incredible need. Um, there is, unfortunately, a very big difference between donating a kidney and donating a portion of your liver. Um, in Israel, altruistic kidney donations are not permitted. Uh, I'm sorry, altruistic liver donations are not permitted. The only uh, living donations of uh, livers in Israel are between first-degree relatives. In the United States also, it's not very common. It's, it's quite unusual. And basically, the reason is that a kidney donation um, really generally does not affect the, the health of the donor, uh, of a healthy donor. A liver donation is much more complicated, much more dangerous, not something that we would feel comfortable encouraging people to do because it is, um, it's a high-risk procedure. 
Part of the reason is because uh, if an adult donates a portion of his liver to a child, that's one thing, because the child is small and needs a small portion of the liver. But for an adult to donate to another adult, um, he usually needs to give about 60%. And that leaves him himself with only 40%. And it's a very dangerous operation. And uh, I don't know of any organizations in the world that advocate living liver donations specifically on an altruistic basis. It's difficult and complicated. There is one organization in the entire world that is doing what we're doing. That is, they're called Renewal, that Rabbi Shmuley donated his kidney through Renewal. A very similar organization, uh, a little bit smaller than ours, pretty much confined to the religious community. Um, in Israel, the, uh, most of the donors so far, although we're working on it, most of the donors are religious. The majority of the recipients are not religious. They are just Israelis who need a kidney. Um, the only organization that we know of in the world that's like ours is Renewal, who, who do very similar work. But they're, they give kidneys, I think, to everyone. But most of the people who donate and receive are, uh, are Orthodox Jews. Well, um, I, I think basically the, the story is mostly, you know, my, well, my grandmother would have called a Yiddish cop. Um, Israeli, um, Israeli organ, people who need an organ in Israel up until 10 years ago had a very, very difficult time, and they were likely to go abroad and look for organs. And um, unfortunately, a, there were a number of unscrupulous uh, Israelis who saw this as a money-making opportunity and started uh, dealing in organ trafficking from uh, various countries, Eastern Europe and, and third world countries. And uh, it was something that gave Israel a very bad reputation. Uh, it wasn't happening in Israel, but it was happening from Israelis who were trying to take advantage of others, uh, unfortunately. In, uh, in other parts of the world, and there's been a big crackdown on it. Uh, there is legislation that has pretty much prohibited Israelis from uh, receiving transplants outside of Israel, except in very specific situations. At the same time, uh, giving certain incentives to living kidney donors in Israel, um, people like me get, uh, get compensated for lost work days. We get our health insurance paid for a number of years. We get bumped up in the, uh, on the list if we ourselves or any member of our immediate family ever needs a transplant, we have high priority. Um, and these are things that have allowed Israelis to, to do this thing. In other words, I might be a very generous and, and selfless person, but if I can't take a month off of work because I can't afford it, I'm not going to be donating my kidney to anyone. But once the government comes along and says, we will reimburse you for 40 days of lost work time. I'm cool because you know it's not a, it's not gonna it's not like paying a person to, to to donating a kidney, but it's just making sure they don't lose money, and that has been a real uh, very enlightened legislation that I, I really think can be a model for 
for, uh, for other places and other communities. And I also think that Matnat Chaim and the way that people give, help each other mostly by word of mouth and by publicizing a good deed is something that can be a model for other communities. Not, not for a whole country, but why couldn't, why couldn't a shul or uh, a school or a community in, in the United States or anywhere uh, try to encourage this sort of behavior among people in the own, their own community. Here, here's a person in our community who's on dialysis who wants to come and get tested to see if maybe they could give a kidney. We have all kinds of, of parlor meetings. We send people to talk, p kidney donors. Once they've given a kidney, they want to talk about it, and they want to help other people do it because it's such an incredible uh, experience, an incredible mitzvah. And many of us go and speak to all kinds of every group you can possibly imagine, from kindergartners to senior citizens, to talk about this process and, and how, we can, uh, how it can be encouraged. And I think I know of a couple, several people in the States who have done it, and, um, and I think it can really be the next big thing. Is there an age limit? Interesting question. Um, the, the most important age limit is minimum. We, in Israel, uh, you're not allowed to donate a kidney, at least not to, if it's one of someone in your immediate family, maybe a little bit younger, but before you're 24, forget about it, they won't let you. Um, partly it's because it's a big decision. You have to, there, it's a very low risk operation, but it's not risk free. And therefore, to make a decision of that kind, you want people to be a little bit older, you know, when you're, let's put it this way, if uh, 18 year old, religious girls could donate kidneys, there would not be a single person in Israel who needed one. Because I'm telling you, I spend a lot of my time talking to 18-year-old girls and explaining to them why they can't donate a kidney till they're older. It's a, I don't know, it's a thing. Um, but um, 25 for, for men, usually for women, they, they want them to be finished uh, with their pregnancies. It's easier, a little, statistically, a little bit harder to carry a pregnancy. Is a little, a, a slight increase in uh, in uh, pregnancy statistics, like a difficult pregnancy, if you've donated a kidney. It's not impossible, but if you're donating to a stranger, there's going to be plenty of strangers ten years from now. So how about you wait? Um, there are no upper age limits on for kidney donors. However, you do have to be very, very, very healthy. And obviously, as people uh, get into their 60s and 70s, they're less healthy, and they're more likely to fail one of the medical tests that they have to do along the way. Um, the oldest kidney donor we've had in Israel is close to 70. But in England, somebody donated at 83. And uh, in theory, it's possible. In practice, it's a bit harder when, uh, when people are older. Thank you all very much for coming. I appreciate it. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education 
in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening. 